Next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. You're busy running around from work to kids to evening events. Healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra for only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids. By the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24/7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. This month, we're kicking off a series of episodes on the complex topic of marijuana law. Each year, the war on drugs costs $39 billion to enforce, and as much as $70 billion when you can calculate all the prosecution and incarceration that goes along with it. Those numbers don't take into account the billions of dollars in legal fees incurred by defendants. The numbers are staggering when you consider that more than 39 million arrests have been made for nonviolent drug offenses, and of those, a vast majority were for marijuana possession. More than 2 million a year on average, according to an ACLU report from 2015. While we've seen the number of marijuana cases decline in states that have adopted regulation, cannabis is still deemed a Schedule I controlled substance under federal law. There's still enough ambiguity in the law that makes it difficult for even the most seasoned lawyers to defend marijuana offenders. Despite the fact that reasons marijuana was classified as a Schedule I substance in the first place have been proven false by indisputable scientific evidence, the gap between federal law and state regulation is growing wider each year. Case law varies state by state, and in states that have yet to reform marijuana laws, courts continue to throw the proverbial book at nonviolent marijuana offenders. Ironically, while marijuana prosecutions continue to dominate the criminal courts in those states, there's never been a book to really throw at defendants. That is, until now. I'm going to introduce you to the professor who literally wrote the book on marijuana case law. And that's coming up in just a moment, so stay tuned first. Dr. Brian Donner has another edition of the Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? 
Thank you, Snowden. Today I'd like to talk about the importance of preserving medical marijuana programs as more states consider implementing adult use, otherwise known as recreational use laws. While the economic upside of the recreational market garners a lot of the spotlight, it's very important to keep in mind that the medical side has been critical to the industry's entire evolution, and in fact, I feel we're truly initiated. The integration of medical cannabis into our healthcare system has been a tremendous accomplishment especially considering this was initiated by a patient-centered movement. It's important to the acceptance, integration, and expansion of the cannabis industry as a whole, which cannot be underestimated. For the legal cannabis industry to progress and move forward, we need to work toward improving acceptance of medical marijuana into mainstream medicine. Healthcare providers, business leaders, and policymakers need to be open to establishing a more inclusive and progressive dialogue. In my personal opinion, this will also help establish and maintain credibility to influence the DEA's eventual consideration of removing marijuana from the Schedule One listing. That will be more likely to happen if medical marijuana programs remain in place even after adult use measures are passed. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you for that, Dr. Donner. I look forward to next week's Medical Marijuana Minute. Oh, let's get started. We have Professor Robert Mykos. He's an internationally renowned expert recognized as one of America's premier authorities on marijuana law. He's a professor at Vanderbilt Law School in Tennessee and the author of the first of its kind textbook to address the law, policy, and governmental authority surrounding marijuana. Published by Wolters Kluwer Regulatory Legal Education Division, the title of Professor Mykos's book is Marijuana Law, Policy, and Authority. And it was written to provide law students with an accessible, comprehensive, and engaging guide to law, policy, and authority issues surrounding three categories of regulated parties, marijuana users, suppliers, and the third parties who interact with them. Professor Mykos, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Snowden. I have not read the entire book, which is nearly a thousand pages long, but I did read the first section of it, and I have to congratulate you. It's very well written, and even for a layperson such as myself, um, it's very easy to understand, and I think it, it seems as though you may have written it that way so that it's accessible to people who are not only um, law professors or law students, but also just general uh, populations that are just interested in marijuana law. Is that correct? That's true, and, and I, I appreciate your, your kind words about the book. Um, I really intended it to have a, a very broad audience. Um, it's lawyers, you know, people who are currently practicing uh, law um, who want to get to know more about this emerging field. Uh, it's those law students who are curious about it, who may be thinking about practicing in it. Uh, but it's also the, the wide range of people who are really interested in this topic um, but don't have any legal training, um, aren't in law school. Um, and this includes not just uh, you know, folks who are, are uh, lay people, um, maybe in the industry or not, um, but even a lot of legislators uh, these days, especially at the state level, don't have legal training. So I wanted to make sure that, that they weren't excluded from this. And, and so I set about organizing the book and structuring it in a way that would sort of ease them into what is a very complicated topic 
but also provide some of the, the background that you need to understand some of these complicated subjects. Yeah. Well, it is a very divisive subject, and particularly since there are basically you can divide um, this uh, the audience of marijuana law into two categories. One, people who would like to see it change, and two, those who are fighting tooth and nail to um, keep marijuana from becoming legalized. And like I mentioned in my opening, it's very interesting the gap between the state regulation and the federal law. And I just wonder, um, as, you were, as you're going through all of these um, cases and, and laying out this framework of this book, how much in the back of your mind was the fact that uh, marijuana federal policy was actually um, created on a falsehood? Well, you know, when I approach this book, I, I want to maintain objectivity with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't decide in, in what is a, you know, or what can be a very divisive uh, subject. Um, so I really try to put, you know, all sides to these different arguments on their best footing. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things about the federal marijuana ban um, is really that, you know, if you, you look at the law, a lot of people will criticize for example, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the, the head federal agency that's in charge of scheduling drugs, uh, and they'll be very critical of it, um, as you've been, um, and saying you know, that the science doesn't support the position that they, they put this drug in, uh, put it on Schedule 1. Um, but I'll try to, to detail that agency's you know, most recent decision refusing to reschedule marijuana uh, and try to illuminate why the agency thinks that's the right out outcome. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean, if, if you look at it that way, um, if you actually look at the, the DEA's latest uh, rescheduling opinion, which is a hundred more than a hundred pages long, I've, I've tried to condense it significantly in the book and, and make it easier to, to parse. But what's interesting about that is you'll actually see the agency say the key sticking point to moving marijuana to a different schedule, from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, um, is the lack of what they see as sort of gold standard evidence demonstrating that marijuana has a medical benefit. Um, now, you can disagree with that assessment by the DEA, um, and you can say, hey, there's, you know, there's emerging science that supports all sorts of, of medical applications. But what the, the DEA has consistently said is we want really large-scale clinical trials, double-blind trials demonstrating some medical efficacy. And there's lots of promising evidence out there. Uh, and even the, the DEA will say that, but, but it hasn't yet reached that standard that needs to be met. Um, to, to you know, uh, to to move it under the statute, right? But you know, so, the the irony of that is that because it's Schedule One, it doesn't allow for any U.S. Uh, clinical trials without jumping through a million hoops to get permission. And well, that's that's a good point. So one of the the difficulties is that you know the the Controlled Substances Act, the statute that the, the DEA is applying. It's designed to be comprehensive and to cover 
thousands of different substances, most of which, um, nearly all of which, are man-made. Um, they're produced in a lab. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons why it's especially difficult to meet that standard um, I discussed for marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, you have plant berries from one strain to another. Um, you know, it, there are all sorts of regulatory controls that the DEA has placed on Schedule One substances that, that makes it more difficult to conduct research. Uh, it's a psychoactive substance, so it's a little bit more difficult to conduct these double-blind studies. So in a way, it may be impossible to meet the DEA standard or the, the standard imposed by the statute, but one of the, the points that I try to draw forth in, in the book is that the DEA itself may not be able to fix that problem. It could be that this statute, this Controlled Substances Act, is broken. Yeah. Uh, and then it's not a great fit for some substances, but you would have to get Congress really to remove marijuana from the list of controlled substances in the same way that it did at the outset uh, with tobacco and, and alcohol. For example, there's the Carers Act, which is currently in the Senate. It, it emerged first by Steve Cohen in, in the House of Representatives, and it was shuffled off to committee for more than a year, and it has reemerged in the Senate recently. And that looks like a promising bill that, that could potentially uh, reschedule marijuana to at least allow for medical research to be done in the U.S. And as far as the gold standards, I think that it's it's probably important to clarify that the gold standard that they're looking for is gold standard of U.S. Uh, study because, I mean, if you do any search for marijuana in pubmeds.gov, for example, which is like a clearinghouse of all of these clinical studies, and you do a keyword search for marijuana or cannabis, you get more than 20,000 studies on, on that subject that were done in Europe and Asia and South America. I mean, there are just, there are thousands of them. And something that I think is, is particularly interesting is that the U.S. government holds the patent on the medical use of marijuana pertaining to neurological and um, inflammation conditions. It's almost like a constitutional question in a way. You know, wh what gave them the authority to schedule a substance that um, does have medical use like that and that the government deemed to have medical use by filing that patent? Well, there is a, a contradiction, sort of a, an oddity in the scheduling that um, the DEA has approved uh, for medical use uh, a couple of artificial or synthetic versions of THC, which is the, the primary uh, cannabinoid that, that most people are, are interested in. Um, and it's actually scheduled those down to, I believe it's schedule uh, three at this point. Yeah, it is three, yeah. Um, so it, it recognizes just the, the sheer fact that those are not on schedule one um, by itself demonstrates that they must have some medical utility. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if there's a drug that has any potential for abuse, but has no medical utility, it's got to be on Schedule 1. Um, that's their, their claim with respect to marijuana. Mm -hmm. You have these two synthetic versions of the drug that are on Schedule 3, which suggests that they see medical potential in this, 
Um, but again, I, I think that comes down to, you know, they, they make these distinctions between sort of the natural substance and the synthetic versions of the substance. Um, but you're right, there's an inconsistency there. And, and at some point, um, you could point to that. You could point to, you know, again, if you read through the, the rescheduling decision, the DEA both thinks that there's a lot of promise in some of that research that, that you mentioned. Um, but if you look at the other side of the equation, um, you know, if you look at the, the harms associated with marijuana, uh, the DEA uh, itself rejects the notion that it's a, a gateway drug. Uh, it doesn't see a lot of um, serious harm to this particular drug. Uh, it talks about bronchitis. It talks about lung uh, concerns. Um, it says there's no link to psychosis. Um, so it's interesting to read through this document and get the sense that there aren't, you know, the, the same harms that we associate with opioids, with heroin, with cocaine, uh, and other harder drugs. And yet again, the DEA is saying we can't move this out of Schedule 1 until we get a really big study that we're confident in that demonstrates there's some medical utility. Yeah. Um, that's a big sort of hanging point at this point. And, and to them, I think 20,000 studies all involving small numbers of patients or maybe from other countries where not, they're not sure of the, the credibility, that's not going to substitute for you know, a single study here in the U.S. involving a couple thousand patients. That's really what they're waiting for. Yeah. Um, mentioned that that's really difficult to do. It's difficult to get the funding. It's difficult to get the regulatory approval. It's difficult to get the patients and so on. But but that's a real sticking point, and unless Congress wants to step in and, and hurry that along. Yeah, well, I hope that they do, because it's it's so obvious to those of us who really do understand the um, benefits of cannabis to human health. It, it, just, it seems like it's just laden with hypocrisy. And, you know, the other thing, too, which I find really interesting, is that on numerous occasions when there have been petitions to... Um, deschedule or reschedule the natural substance, marijuana, um, the cannabis plant in general, um, those petitions have been endorsed by esteemed organizations like the American Medical Association and, um, and most recently even the Academy of, um, the Academy of Medical Sciences, you know, the NAS. Um, they've been, you know, more than happy to endorse some of these petitions, and yet, you know, it just—I don't know. But we can we can move on from there. I could talk about that all day because it really is—it's just such a conundrum. And and it, it's really one of the the bigger themes of the book. Um, you know, the the book addresses three sort of distinct topics. One of them, you know, the the substantive rules that govern this drug. Uh, another one is the policy rationale behind those rules. Um, and the last one uh, is the authority to choose among the different rules that are out there. And the, the point, one of the points that the, the book tries to drive home is really to illuminate what's the authority of these different govern, government actors. Um, so there's a lot of energy that's been put into these petitions to reschedule marijuana. Um, they're all directed naturally to the Drug Enforcement Agency. But I think a lot of people don't realize both the, the 
uh, the serious statutory constraints on that agency. Um, so, for example, if you were to go to the agency and tell the agency and, and demonstrate conclusively there's medical utility uh, to marijuana, um, you should put it on Schedule 3 or Schedule 4 because the harms associated with this are pretty low. The DEA could cite a pretty strong statutory argument for saying we can't do that. We're mm -hmm. uh, empowered to do that. But the most we can do the way that Congress has drafted the statute, the most we can do is to shift it to Schedule 2. Right. Uh, and that seemed like a big move, and, and that would open some doors, although um, that's still a very tightly controlled substance. Cocaine, for example, is a Schedule 2 controlled substance. You can get it legally in the United States, although you, you'd have trouble finding that. Um, so you can sort of see that if you're looking for you know, who can change the law, um, it's really Congress at the federal level is the one that's, that's ultimately calling the shots. And they may take their own pot shots at, at the DEA and at the executive branch. Um, and you see a lot of criticisms by Congress. But I think a lot of that is just Congress being coy uh, and trying to punt on this issue and, and shift you know, whatever dissatisfaction there is um, over to another branch of government. But it's, it's ultimately Congress that's that's really calling the shots at the federal level. Yeah, well, and, and the downside of that is that they also have a lot of um, campaign finance uh, dollars coming in from special interests who have uh, a vested interest, I should say, in, in keeping it <laughs> as a Schedule One substance. But it's, it's tough, yeah, it's tough to get Congress to, to change things. I mean, if you go to an agency, I think that the reason so much energy has been spent on the DEA is that people believe it, it could change this, and it's a lot easier to get the DEA to change it, um, but it's really just not within its power. It, it can only do very limited things, and ultimately, it's a, a tougher shift to move, but ultimately, um, it's really going to have to come from Congress. Yeah. Um, the Carers Act or, or something even more ambitious than that. Yeah, and one would hope that they would just do it out of sheer common sense, if nothing else. But you mentioned um, in your book you, you drew attention um, early on uh, to the Hemp Industries Association versus the Drug Enforcement Agency. And in that case, they actually went up to, I believe it was the Ninth Circuit of the Court of Appeals. And what the court determined is that CBD and substances made from the stock of the hemp plant, which is a different subspecies than the, the psychotropic variety of the plant, the cannabis plant, saying that, that any kind of food substance or um, supplemental food substance made from the stock of hemp is legal to import and um, sell anywhere in the United States. Despite that ruling, what I found really interesting was that in January of this year, the federal, or maybe it was December of last year, but it was, it was within the last seven months or so, the federal registry came out and basically gave CBD its own class number within the Schedule I controlled substances. And what do, you, what do you think about that? What do you make of that for people who are um, trying to defend CBD in states that haven't even regulated yet? Well, they've come up with a lot of uh, clever and astute legal arguments 
um, trying to, to claim that CBD is not marijuana for purposes of federal law. Mm-hmm. Um, if that was the case, then you would basically say um, we need to, to treat these two things as legally distinct, uh, and CBD is permissible. It's not regulated under federal law, um, but marijuana is. Um, that is a, a difficult argument to make, um, but it's based on a, a quirk in the federal definition of marijuana. Mm-hmm. The way that federal law defines marijuana for purposes of the Controlled Substances Act, um, it is the plant, cannabis, sativa, um, it includes other varieties of the plant as well, but it excludes certain parts of the plant, um, and they were excluded for a couple of different reasons. This is things like uh, the stalk of the plant. Um, those parts were excluded both because they had a, you know, a, a legal use, a non-controversial use uh, in hemp products um, for uh, manufacturers, uh, for other uh, products. Uh, and also because those parts of the plant don't contain much THC. So it's right. very unlikely people could use this as an end run around the band. Um, and so there was this, this case that you mentioned uh, before um, that ultimately got up to uh, the Ninth Circuit. This is the, the Hemp Industries Association case um, that I discussed in the book. Uh, and there, you know, you had somebody who was selling um, hemp seeds, uh, hemp oil, things of that sort, that had trace amounts of THC in it, but all of them were made from the, the stock of the marijuana plant or the cannabis plant. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit said, even though it has THC, um, natural THC in it, it's from a part of the plant that is excluded from the definition, so it's not marijuana. Right. Uh, they're not violating federal law. And then the question became, well, could you expand that? Could, could you, you know, now say, well, what if we take CBD out of uh, the plant um, and make that separate? Uh, is, is that going to be covered by the definition? Uh, and you're right that the, the DEA has taken the position that, that CBD itself um, is a uh, drug that is covered by the Controlled Substances Act. And that decision may be contested. That, that may be one that, that doesn't pass the test of time. Um, but there's a, a second obstacle, I think, that, that advocates will run into, which is that you have to get that CBD from those excluded parts of the plant. Whatever comes from the buds, leaves, and so on of the cannabis plant, um, anything that's covered by the definition of marijuana is going to be called marijuana. Even um, if it comes it, from the hemp plant, which is actually... Um, at, and that the, the courts in the past have, have always said there's no difference between the hemp plant uh, and the, the you know cannabis plant that's used to make um, marijuana that gets you high. Yeah. Um, they always said that, that they're all the same thing. The, the statutory def- definition, interestingly, mentions only cannabis sativa, um, but the courts say that's all-encompassing and includes plants, even if they contain... Um, no or very little THC. So. Yeah, the, and the irony is that cannabis indica is actually not cannabis sativa <laughs> by any stretch. I mean, it's it's a different it's a different species. You know, or, uh, what, what? Right, and they, yeah, that's that's one of the, the interesting cases in there. Um, a First Circuit case, uh, actually by the the judge that I clerked for, um, talks about how there are you know three potential 
um, species or you know, the, the taxonomy is a little bit uncertain, whether they're species or a different genus or um, just a different variety, um, but at least three different types of cannabis plants. Um, and the statute mentions by name only one of those. Right. The court reads the statute um, less literally and says, in fact, it applies to all of them. Yeah, even though clearly it, it doesn't. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the, the question is always in, in statutory interpretation. You know, do you read something literally or do you read it more with the, the purpose behind it? Right, the intent. Yeah, and those can lead you to two different results. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, following the letter of the law, you know, it it would stand to reason that cannabis, indica, hemp, Indian hemp, whatever you want to call it, is a different plant. And, and it really only has traces of THC. So, I don't know. It's... <laughs> yeah, one, one way to, to get around the, you know, the, the sort of definitional issue or the, you know, is this a different strain? Is it a different variety, a different species? Would be to say, hey, you know, we should put a... Um, requirement in the statute that, that it's only marijuana if it includes some threshold quantity of, of THC in it. Mm -hmm. The courts have, have discussed that issue because it's been pushed by litigants in the past. It raises some practical difficulties. Um, you know, how do you, you know, actually figure that out? How do you know whether or not the plant that you're growing on your farm um, has uh, uh, too much THC in it or not? That can vary somewhat uh, based on you know, a variety of factors. Right. But that would be one way to, to get around that sort of taxonomy issue um, and make it a little bit less complicated. Right. Well, and, and determining how much THC is inside a, a variety that's being grown on someone's farm is a very simple matter of just taking it to the lab. Yeah. It, scientifically, it's, it's a pretty simple matter, although, you know, what happens if someone is growing a thousand plants, leaving their just hemp plants, uh, and that they've you know kept below whatever the threshold is, but they've slightly exceeded it. Right. Uh, you know, then you get into questions about knowledge. Um, you get into questions about you know was this person trying to game the system, um, or did they you know did something happen? You know, if this is a plant that's growing outdoors, could have been affected by natural conditions. Um, you know, there are lots of things that that could. Um, influence that that laboratory result. Right. Well, there's a lot of debate out there right now about um, ever since that that um, notice came out in the Federal Registry. There's a lot of debate about whether or not um, people are breaking the law to even purchase CBD products. And I mean, here's a question for you: They isolated the molecule CBD cannabidiol um, in this particular ruling and did not include with that, that numerical code any of the other uh, cannabinoids that are often found in a tincture that has, that's mainly CBD. And um, you know, ex even excluding THC, because there's a, there's a scientific way to extract CBD without any traces of THC. But chocolate, for example, has pretty decent quantities of CBD. So, and uh, as does echinacea, which is a common um, 
nutraceutical that you take when you're getting a cold, for example. So if, if CBD has been assigned its own numerical code under Schedule 1, does that mean that chocolate <laughs> should be illegal too? My understanding is that it would only be CBD derived uh, from the cannabis plant. Mm -hmm. Although it so didn't it, even, it, it specifically said CBD on its own as a molecule, which I just found really interesting. Yeah, so, so it would be fascinating if this is found, you know, if you've got a, a chemically identical uh, substance that's found naturally in all sorts of other products, chocolate, whatever it might be, um, that would pose a lot of um, difficult issues. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of those hypotheticals we love, uh, we as, as law professors, uh, love to give our students, you know, what happens if um, you know, this scenario arises. So that would pose a, a lot of headaches for um, regulators uh, and obviously for, you know, the Hershey company, whoever it might be who's talking uh, chocolate, um, if that were true. Um, but again, as I understand it, this, this could be read to encompass only CBD derived from the cannabis plant. Mm -hmm. But again, that's, that's an issue that, that uh, the, the DEA has butted heads with the federal courts um, in the last decade uh, when they tried to schedule naturally occurring THC uh, as a separate controlled substance. Um, the court said you couldn't do that. Um, this a Ninth Circuit decision. They said you can consider um, THC that comes from the cannabis plant, you know, at least if it's coming from the, the flower, the cannabis, cannabis plant, or something else that's covered as part of the definition of marijuana, that can be considered marijuana. Um, but if it's just standalone, naturally occurring THC that's found, say, in the stalks of the marijuana plant or the, the cannabis plant, um, that is not a controlled substance. Yeah. It, it's interesting, isn't it? And I tell you what, that's one class I'd love to participate in. I think it would be, be so interesting to watch a moot court <laughs> debate yeah. about this issue because, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it just, it, reason just goes out the window with so many of the federal uh, laws like this, but it particularly well, I, I with this. A, a, a recurring theme, and, and this is part of it, a recurring theme I, I pick up on in the book, um, in the book is, is that oftentimes there are rules made uh, and decisions made and, and statutes drafted um, that are designed to make it easier for the government to make its case. Um, and that may be the, the case with you know, this definition of marijuana you know, the reason why the definition doesn't reference any of the, the cannabinoids found in the plant. Um, but it occurs in other areas as well. Um, for example, if, if the government uh, is trying to, to prove that someone was in possession of marijuana, um, typically they have to prove that that person knew that they had marijuana on them. Um, but that can be a difficult thing to prove. Um, because you might imagine, you know, you look in your backpack, your purse, your coat pocket. Um, right now, if I asked you, you know, what's in all of those things, you, you might forget about a few things. Mm -hmm. um, or realize that you have something in there. Um, it's very tough to get inside someone's head and for the government to prove 
what a person actually knew. So the courts will come up with these uh, sort of inferences that juries are allowed to make, things that, that ease the government's burden of proof. Um, so in the, the possession context, they'll say a jury is allowed to presume that a defendant knew whatever was in their personal possession, you know, whatever was in something that they had exclusive access to, their car, their glove compartment, uh, their purse, their wallet, their coat, whatever it might be. Um, and that just, again, it's, it's designed to make the government's job of proving or establishing a, a criminal conviction a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, see that, that theme sort of working throughout all these cases, this, this tension about, well, what happens um, in the case where, you know, this seems like an unfair presumption, um, or in the case where, you know, you've got somebody out there who thought that they were growing hemp uh, to make textiles with, but in fact, it's got, you know, THC in it. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those are the tough cases that, that sort of get swallowed by these broad rules. Right. I, I was reading um, in one book, I don't even remember which one it was, but um, about when, when President Reagan sent out um, armies of DEA agents to go and pull up the indigenous hemp that was growing wild in some of the southern states and in the Midwest um, just to clear them out. And they were nothing more than, than hemp. Um, I, I found that you know, an incredible waste of money. But what I was reading in there is that the reason they did that is because people would mistakenly um, believe that it was it was uh, marijuana, and that um, you know if it was if somebody would be subject to arrest if if they were caught growing marijuana, even though it was the hemp plant. And so I, I think that that had something to do, or you know, their justification for doing what they did, you know, is probably based on on the way that the law was written. But let me ask you this, too, because um, in, in the 1970s, when um, Nixon uh, created the CSA and signed it into law, uh, Congress created it, but he signed it into law, one of the reasons that he pushed so hard for the Controlled Substances Act had more to do with a political agenda than, than an actual danger to society. And this was something that actually came out in not only the tapes that were made public of Nixon talking about this, but also in, in testimony and quotes in various articles by um, Ehrlichman, who was very close at the time with uh, Richard Nixon and was inside the conversations about why this was happening. And he made no bones about saying that really the reason that marijuana was scheduled in uh, Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act was because it would be one way for him to gain a political ad advantage by incarcerating um, anti-war leftists. Uh, I believe that's the direct quote. And, and take away the vast population of people who are opposing his, his policy, particularly where regarding Vietnam. And he was really afraid of losing his reelection bid. And so when you look at those 
testimonies and, and even the testimony of the president himself within those tapes, it, it seems as though someone should be questioning the legality of having scheduled uh, marijuana in Schedule 1, particularly when one of the quotes was, um, did we know that, that there was no harm in marijuana? Yes, of course we knew there was no harm in marijuana, but we put it there because and of all the reasons I just mentioned. So when you look at something like that, it, does it ever surprise you that no one has ever really challenged that in, in exactly that way by drawing upon those references? Well, yeah, I, I, I think those references, uh, if you could attribute those to um, Congress uh, and to all the people who voted on this in Congress, um, that might give rise to a successful, that would probably be uh, an equal protection challenge mm -hmm. of something those lines, um, because you know the, the underlying law is that the government can't adopt laws just to, to target a particular group or just to harm a particular group, um, especially when it does so, you know, using uh, sort of race um, or other suspect classifications to, to figure out who's going to be targeted. Um, the difficulty, though, in, in you know mounting such a challenge is that. You're always going to have a, a variety of, of motivations uh, behind a law, um, and unless you can pin that same motivation on a large group of members of Congress, the, the people who actually drafted the law um, and put it into effect and, and passed it, um, it's going to be difficult to, to just establish that that was really the, the driving motivation, uh, especially since even at the, the time when the Controlled Substances Act was passed in the early 1970s, you already had on the books um, outright prohibitions in all 50 states, um, laws prohibiting the possession, distribution, manufacture of, of marijuana. Um, so the, the federal government was sort of late to the game in, in passing such a, uh, an outright ban itself. Um, but, you know, it was doing basically what the states had already been doing. So, right. again, it just makes it difficult to, to challenge. And, in fact, there are, you know, there are lots of challenges have been brought um, either on equal protection grounds like this. There are other challenges that are brought basically claiming now that the outright ban is irrational, and therefore violates due process. Um, those have been rebuffed by the courts. It's, it's a tough you know, threshold is a, a tough standard to meet right. um, to, to make that challenge successfully, but it, it hasn't been for one of trying. Right. Well, and, and the irony also is that even though um, on the books it doesn't specifically say it's targeting one group or another, but the irony is that a disproportionate um, percentage of those incarcerated for nonviolent marijuana offenses are minority groups. And you're, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, that gets into the, the way that the court has, uh, the courts have sort of massaged that is, is to say that it's not enough to show a disparate impact um, to, to defeat a challenge or to defeat a law on uh, equal protection grounds. You actually have to show that that was the intended result. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, 
some evidence that that was intended. There was there's some evidence as well that the early state bans that were adopted in, in the early 1900s uh, were aimed at immigrant groups and so on. Well, yeah, especially considering that the, the entire thrust of the Reefer Madness campaign, which is what drew attention to it to begin with, that was seriously targeting minority groups and, and in particular Mexican immigrants. And I mean, that, that's where the, the negative perceptions began anyway. And there, there could be, though, to back on your, your question about, um, you know, is there a way to, to challenge this on a constitutional ground? Um, there, there's one that, that I could see sort of being resuscitated sometime in the next few years. I, I don't think it'll be successful given the, the current composition of the Supreme Court. Um, but that would be a challenge, a, a narrow challenge, claiming that the federal ban uh, on marijuana is unconstitutional as applied to people um, who feel like they need to use this for medical reasons, um, people for whom other treatments just haven't worked or have uh, failed altogether. Yeah. Uh, this is a challenge that was raised um, about a decade ago now, uh, a follow-up to a, a famous um, Supreme Court case, Gonzalez versus Raich, uh, where a couple of uh, California women tried to challenge Congress's underlying authority to ban um, the possession and cultivation of marijuana that, that took place entirely within one state, within California. They lost that bid. Um, then they, they tried to claim that um, the federal ban, as applied to them, violated the substance due process right, their, their right to autonomy, their right to medical treatment, and so on. Um, when the Ninth Circuit got to that, the Supreme Court never heard that part of the case. Uh, even the Ninth Circuit, which is a very liberal court, rejected it. Um, but they did so at the time on the grounds that this wasn't yet sort of firmly entrenched in American law, and um, that you only had about a dozen states circa 2007 that had legalized medical marijuana. Today, you have a lot more. You've got 30 or more um, that have legalized medical marijuana. You can toss in you know, a dozen or more states that have legalized CBD alone. Um, and you could say this is almost getting to the point where um, you could recognize a constitutional right, uh, however defined, uh, to medical marijuana. But but that would be, I think, you know, the, the most likely source of a, a successful constitutional challenge, but still one that fits a long shot in my mind. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all very um, it's very interesting, but it's it's kind of um, I think you're right with the current composition of the Supreme Court, and of course I don't see that changing anytime soon. Not only that, but the temperature in the Department of Justice at the moment um, is very anti-marijuana, and yeah, I I think that it's going to be it would be an interesting thing for someone to raise this in the future just to see what would happen. But it seemed it, you know, logic would have that absolutely this should should have been won. Well, it's it's interesting to compare marijuana with some other uh, legal reform movements that have been successful uh, in the last couple decades, uh, including the, the the movement to uh, legalize same sex marriage. That movement took place predominantly before the court. Um, you know, it was people challenging state bans against 
same-sex marriage on constitutional grounds, mm -hmm. um, that these are irrational, um, that these arbitrarily discriminate uh, against uh, le lesbians and gays. Um, and those were very successful, but that was a very different route that reform sought. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't ballot box, it wasn't through initiatives, it wasn't through state legislatures. Um, what is interesting to me about marijuana reform, and, and you know, it's been so successful, is that almost all of that success has taken place at the ballot box, um, predominantly at the state, uh, but still, you know, through the, the normal lawmaking procedures, um, you know, through ballot initiatives, uh, and to some extent through state legislatures, rather than sort of um, challenges in the court saying, you know, this ban is unconstitutional. Um, so it's just two different routes to reform. And, um, you know, it's just interesting to, to see how, um, you know, and, and to speculate about why the, the movement um, went their, their separate ways in, in terms of method. Right. Exactly. Well, and, and another group that's been harmed I would say, uh, significantly in terms of their right to enjoy a prosperous lifestyle or, or a prosperous living is the, the farming community because, you know, we do allow the importation of hemp and it's, it is a billion-dollar industry already and the U.S. farmers are just prohibited from enjoying it. And it seems as though that would be an issue that could be raised in the courts as well. The discriminatory nature of it, you know, allowing importation, but not allowing farmers to enjoy that, that prosperity that could come from it. Yeah, the, the oddity there, again, it goes back to that legal definition of marijuana that we, we talked about before. Um, if you're in the United States, you can handle the stock of the, the cannabis plant. Uh, legally, that's that's not considered marijuana, as, as we discussed. Uh, and you can make hemp with it. You can make textiles with it. Um, if you've got the the non-germinating seeds of the cannabis plant, uh, you can make products with those. The problem is you can't get the stalks or the seeds of the cannabis plant without having the rest of the plant uh, without having <laughs> our right. leaves. And so you have to possess the marijuana plant, so it's or the the cannabis plant. So it, it's one of these catch twenty twos. I mean, the the federal government will allow the importation of those parts of the plant that aren't marijuana. Um, and so I think their their response, if you were to, to challenge that, you know, say, well, why do you allow the importation of this stuff, but you don't allow it to grow it domestically? They'd say, well. Because if you grow it domestically, we'll have all the stuff we don't want, um, all the stuff that is considered marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's not necessarily a, a satisfying response, but I think that's the response that they give, that, you know, it's fine. You can handle hemp. You can handle stalks. You can handle non-germinating seeds. Just don't bring in the rest of the stuff, um, which other countries are, are you know, happy to, uh, to allow farmers to, to grow the whole plant. Um, the federal government hasn't gotten that, that far yet. Yeah. Well, when you think about how much money could be brought in in revenues alone and how much money could be saved by not uh, prosecuting um, marijuana offenses, especially not hemp possession and, and that sort of thing, it's just staggering how much, how much money could be saved. 
and and economics. I mean, that's that's a big selling point for reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, initially the the medical marijuana reforms I think took off because you know, there was a, a powerful argument you could make to lawmakers and to voters in general that hey, you know, this drug might actually help some people um, rather than than hurting everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a powerful sales pitch. Um, then when you get to adult use laws or, or recreational marijuana laws, um, the the sales pitch changed a bit. You know, it became you know, there's a lot of tax revenue that you are foregoing um, if you, you know, leave marijuana as a black market. Um, legalize it, then you can license producers and you can tax them. Uh, so you can get the tax revenue, you can get the jobs that are associated with this uh, and with all the ancillary industries. Um, that's become the, the new sales pitch, I think. And, and you know, that can be made for hemp. Uh, and again, with, with hemp, you could make it in a way that doesn't carry all the baggage that, that people see with uh, marijuana more generally, especially right. that will legalize the plant with just very low content of, of THC. What's, what's the harm in that? Um, but I think economics is a, a very powerful sales pitch. It always is in, in politics, but that's, that's one of the reasons why this has been a successful reform movement uh, is that it's, you know, it's pushing the right button. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I could actually be quite satisfied talking about this for another few hours. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm, I'm getting the signal from our producer that it's nearly time for us to wrap it up. But gosh, what, a, what an interesting conversation. And I would love to follow up with you again, Professor, sometime in the near future. There's always something coming up that that we could use some sound legal expertise to sort of help massage the topic to the point where people can actually understand what's going on with it. I'm happy to do so. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, recently, real quick, one of the guests on our show last year actually filed a constitutional question in the state of Arkansas, and he lost the first case but the constitutional question had to do with the discrepancy between the federal and the state law and the loss of constitutional rights, for example, um, the right to bear arms in the event someone were uh, to use this as a medical patient. It was very interesting to talk to him about what his impetus was to actually file this, this constitutional question, but it was more interesting to see that the state attorney's office was defending it as if it were a lawsuit, and basically they dismissed the case um, based on the fact that there was no harm that had been, or crime, uh, or prosecution of the person who was filing the suit. So, you know, why would they even bother doing this? And he's like, well, it's a constitutional question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it really is a conundrum, you know, when you start drilling down into it but i really do appreciate your being here well thanks so much for having me (laughs) you're certainly welcome so another show comes to a close once again i'd like to personally thank my guest professor robert micas for sharing his insights and vast knowledge with us today whether you're an attorney a law school student professor or just interested in the law professor micas's book is a must read Um, Visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episodes. I will post his bio along with a link to the Wolters Kluwer publisher website where you can actually purchase his book. 
And if you enjoyed this topic, you do not want to miss next week's episode. I will be speaking right here with Robert Hoban, uh, the courageous attorney who sued the DEA and won all the way up to the Ninth Circuit Court. Um, on behalf of the Hemp Industry Association, it's the case we mentioned earlier on in the show, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Hemp Meds and Healthterra. We could not be doing this without you. We have so many others to thank. Uh, Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. Eric Goodall, the composer of our theme song Evergreen. Our engineer Craig here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. Our program director Steve at XRQK Radio and Airtime America Satellite Radio Networks and Compassionate Certification Centers for helping us to spread the word. Last but not least, thank you to all of you for listening around the nation. Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling. Evergreen is always where I feel the blues Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. HempMeds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit HempMeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. You're busy running around from work to kids to evening events. Healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra for only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids. By the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24/7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.